Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we get into our message time this morning, I need to take care of a quick housekeeping detail, and it has to do with bad information that I gave you last week. So I was telling a story. We started our message last week in Hebrews chapter 4 by making sure we understood what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 14. Do you remember that? If you were here. And they sent in spies, and I laid that whole thing out very nicely, I thought, but I was just giving you bad information, and I wanted to make sure that I corrected this and that I did not mislead you in any way. It was my carelessness in my preparation. I was concerned about the story and your understanding that they they did not want to go in and receive the benefit of what God had for them in blessing them and entering into his rest. But they would not take the word of God and link it with their faith and believe God. All right, They were intimidated by Jericho and big cities like that. Those were already defeated in the mind of God, weren't they? And all they had to do was march around that city. Well, I said they were a couple weeks out from Egypt and that they were along the banks of the Jordan River ready to cross in and it was time to go in. And after the service, Jim Shupi ran over and gave me a good elbow right upside the head. And he said, you're wrong. That's not how it was. And he corrected me, and I'm very thankful for that. And I apologize for not being careful in my details. As I said, I just kind of overlooked and didn't really think things through. So there is a map on the screen, and you can see um, where they were in Kadesh Barnea. So you can see that when they left Egypt over there, Ramses or whatever it is, and came down and crossed down into the southern part of the Sinai wilderness and then on up, they were actually 15 months or so into the wilderness. And that makes sense because in Numbers 14, you recall uh, in previous days, we pointed out that God, God, God was getting very frustrated with their rebellion and their lack of cooperation. And he even said in Numbers 14, these 10 times that they've rebelled and disobeyed. So they had stacked up disobedience already in 15 months. They had already seen God at work with manna and with provision and so forth, but they were 15 months, not two weeks, and they were not along the Jordan River. They were down south of the promised land, and they were about 100 miles away. They were at Kadesh Barnea. See, is that a number 12 or a number 17 there? I can't tell from this angle. 12? Kadesh Barnea to the center right, down uh, at 4 o'clock from the great or five o'clock from the great Mediterranean Sea, there is Kadesh Barnean. And that's where they sent in the 12 spies and Joshua and Caleb came back with the good report. That was the good news, the gospel that they heard, that God had a place for them to enter into their rest. You know, leaving Egypt was like a picture of their salvation and not entering by lack of faith and by disobedience and rebellious hearts, not entering the promised land that God had for them uh, was just a, a way of living far below God's plan of blessing. And we talked a little bit about that at the end of our message, didn't we, about being a miserable Christian. We, we, we believe God enough to enter into our salvation with him and, and we, we want heaven secured. But how often on a day-to-day basis do we live apart from the peace that passes all understanding and we're anxious and we're worry-filled and we're stressed out because we don't link our faith with the word of God and the promises of God and enter into that rest of the place of where God wants us in his will, blessing us, walking in the truth of his word and believing it to be so. Anything you want to add, Dr. Shupi? Are we pretty close to being right now? That's a good friend, isn't it? 
that'll come and correct me. And don't you be afraid to correct me. Um, was it you that I was reminding to just wake up every day and just forgive Pastor Van? Was that this group? Um, but um, anyway, I really do apologize and ask your forgiveness for that, for not having my facts straight. And I did not want to leave it that way. And I wanted to correct it. And I really appreciate Jim um, pointing that out immediately so that I didn't make that mistake in the third service because then it's on the internet all around the world for anybody to hear with all of my nonsense. So um, I'll do my very best to always be accurate. Well, speaking of the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, let's turn our minds to Hebrews chapter 4 and let's turn our attention to our notes. And I made a statement under the introduction there. It says, the Bible is filled with examples and illustrations of the power and priority of the Word of God. Do you know that the Word of God is a powerful thing? That the Word of God is to be a priority in our lives. I was thinking about different stories, uh, again, in our Old Testament, as we begin this morning to lay a foundation for the New Testament. I would invite you to just open your Bibles to that historical book of 2 Samuel, if you can find that readily. If not, just listen, you'll get the point. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm just, gonna, I'm just pulling a fascinating story out of the Old Testament that illustrates how serious the Word of God is. Some of you will recall that at this point in uh, the history of Israel, um, uh, the Philistines had taken captive the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a gold-plated box. Later in Hebrews, in chapter 9, we're going to see there that it tells us what was in the Ark. It had, um, at least, it had Aaron's rod that had budded miraculously. It had a golden jar filled with manna from Egypt, from the wilderness. And it had... um, the second edition of the tablets of the law. You remember that Moses smashed in temper the first edition over his frustration and anger of the sinfulness of the children of Israel. And God gave him a new set, these stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And we know that these things were in it in this gold-plated box. It actually had rings down the side of it. And God had given very specific instruction how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. Now, when the Philistines um, defeated Israel and captured it, they put it on an ox cart and took it away. And it created all kinds of problems. Their gods fell before it and so forth. There's interesting stories. We don't have time to get into it, but these historical accounts are very interesting. Let's just read now a little bit of the account in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it is here that David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and bringing it back into Israel. And it says in verse 2, after in verse 1, he gathered 30,000 of his men. And then in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 6, it says, And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Now those cherubim were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was so significant about this box, this gold-plated box, and the items inside is that this is where God manifested himself. This, where that Ark was, 
Israel knew that's where God was. You can think of it that way. And God dwelt, it says, between the wings of the cherubim, these figurines that were mounted on top of the ark. So they set, verse 3, the ark of God on a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So they build and manufacture a brand new cart, hook oxen to it, put the Ark of the Covenant on it to take it back to where it belongs. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. I'm reading from the New King James translation, by the way. Verse 6, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Bam! Is that an incredible picture or what? They're doing a good thing. He's basically a man of God, one of the priests or attendant of the priests, and, and he's walking beside the cart with the ark that represents the presence of God. It says the oxen stumbled. It must have been a rocky, steep path or something. Oxen are fairly stable-footed, I think. And evidently the ark begins to rock, and he, he just put his hand up there to touch it and steady it so that it wouldn't fall off the cart. And Zambo, he's dead. Now, this is the point here. Now listen. And so it says... The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error. See that? And he died there by the ark of God and David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. You know why? Do you know why this happened? Because way back in Numbers chapter 4, God had given specific instruction to never touch holy things. You don't touch them. So you say, was he supposed to just let it fall? I guess you just let God take care of it. But what you need to know further than that is, not only did he disregard the word of the Lord in touching the ark, but God had given specific instruction to the Israelites on how to transport the ark. And that's why it had rings down the side and they were to cut poles and run these poles through there and they were to carry it on the shoulders of the priests. And here, they thought they did a nice thing. They built a new ox cart and put it on the ox cart. And there's probably a lot of things we could learn from this, but what I wanted to point out is that this is just one among many illustrations in our Bible that remind us that the Word of God really matters. I was just thinking about how powerful and what profound the Word of God is. And when you just begin to think, it's everywhere in our Bibles. And I just jotted some of these down. Genesis 1 is littered. Every few verses it starts with, and then God said. And every time he spoke, something unbelievable happened, like there was light out of darkness. 
God spoke. You think his word is not powerful? You think his word is not profound? You think his word is trite, something to take lightly? Psalm 33, 6 says, adding to that, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And even as I was thinking about the profound authority and power of the word of God, I want to remind you that the teaching of evolution is nothing other than a strike against the word of God. God spoke the worlds into existence and then some pagan comes along and says that a big bang happened and somehow a spark of life originated in some kind of uh, pond of scum. It, it, It is a horrific sin to say that the earth evolved out of nothing because it is a strike against the very word of God. We're going to get to Hebrews 11 eventually, and there he's going to remind us that the worlds were framed by the word of God. What a word. When God speaks, it really, really matters. I put a few other verses that just came to my mind as I was thinking about this. 1 Peter 1.23, though, I wanted to remind you that our very salvation is dependent on the word of God. Have you ever thought that before? He says, having been born again, Peter does, Having been born again, saved from our sin, transformed into newness of life, not of corruptible seed, that is, not of Adam, okay? Adam got us into the sin. He didn't get us out of the sin, but of incorruptible seed, and that was Jesus, the second Adam, through what? Through the word of God, which lives, that's a key word this morning, which lives and abides forever. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So I want you to look at your notes if you have them handy. If not, listen closely because I wrote this on purpose. I try to write on purpose. We often underestimate the credibility, the authority, the necessity And the gravity of the word of God. And this morning, along with the Hebrew believers, we are being reminded, do not do this. Do not do this. Do not underestimate. Do not take lightly the credibility, authority, necessity, and gravity of the word of God. Because it really matters what God says. So to Hebrews chapter 4, we are now for our text this morning. Some of you will recognize the text as quite familiar. Um, These are verses that some of you have memorized, I am sure, in your scripture memory programs in times past. We're going to have as our text this morning just three verses now out of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let's read our text together. Again, I'm, I'll remind you, I'm in the New King James for this series, not the ESV that I normally use. Let us therefore be diligent, verse 11, chapter 4, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Okay, now that is, that is, this is, the, the next two verses are an extension of his thought That reminds us of what he's been dealing with. He's been warning them not to be like the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness, came to a point where it was time to enter the place of promise, the place of blessing that God had for them. And they refused to receive the word of the Lord. They used human logic. They had longings to go back to their own ways. 
They wanted to stone their leaders and replace them. They were all over the place. But where they weren't was in submission to the word of God. Their hearts were hard. Now remember, what he's dealing with in this passage is he's dealing with hardness of heart and disobedience. Okay? He's confronting disobedience and hardness of heart. And you can look some of the verses I listed there. Do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, 3-7, do not harden your hearts, quoting from Psalm 95, in the rebellion, reminding them that the children of Israel never entered into the complete rest of the fulfillment of the plan of God for their life and blessing because they doubted his word. They doubted his capacity to do what he said he would do. And the writer of Hebrews now is going to point out to them how powerful and penetrating the word of God is exposing them for what they really believe, what their motives really are and reminding us how profound the word of God is. So if he says it, it matters. You can believe it. You can link your faith with the word of God, believe it to be true. And that is the key to walking in the will of God. How often we just go so far with God, but then we don't really believe his promises to be true. And We trust our own judgment as we look around and we make our own decisions. And the next thing you know, the wheels have fallen off our wagon because we simply did not believe in faith, the word of God, and live it out. So as he deals with this disobedience and hardness of heart, he is now going to write a couple of sentences about the word of God. Verse 12, now let your eyes go to our text. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from God's sight, from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I don't really have an outline this morning. I just have a list of observations about these verses. Basically eight things about the word of God that the writer of Hebrews wants us to grab a hold of. He wants our hearts to be challenged and he doesn't want us to allow hardness of heart to lead to disobedience, which leads to being out of the will of God, which leads to uh, the really the discipline of God on us rather than the blessing of God on our lives. First of all, when I read those verses 12 and 13, Now remember, look at verse 11. He says, lest anyone fall, the Hebrew believers, like the Israelites did, according to the same example of disobedience. In the same way that they disobeyed, we are capable of disobeying today, of not entering into his rest of the fulfilled promises of his word. For, because of that possibility of disobedience, he wants them to know, for the word of God is living and powerful. Don't disregard it. And the first thing I get out of that is that it is not to be taken lightly. Maybe the primary thing we need to understand here this morning is, number one, do not take the word of God lightly. For it is, what does he say? Living and powerful. It is living. It is not a dead history book, number two. It transforms. It has a life of its own. It is the living word. Here's a few verses you could add to that. John 6, 63, if you like notes. John 6, 63, Jesus said, 
the word I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The word of God is a living thing. Now, let's just stop for just a minute. These verses, like all of Hebrews, are never quite as uh, easy to understand as you might think on first approach. And uh, first of all, what does he mean by the word of God? Is he talking about Jesus, who is the word? Remember in John 1, in the book of Revelation, there's three or four places in the Bible where Jesus is called the word. He's the living word. We also have the, the, the word of God in writing. God spoke, the prophets wrote, that's the word of God. I think it was Jim Shupi praying earlier or else in the first service where whoever prayed in the pulpit prayed that he would bless, God would bless this morning the word of God as it was preached. And we would even lump into that the whole message, right? Pastor Van is preaching the word of God. Well, we're not reading scripture the whole time. We're adding thoughts and comments and interpretation to it. But we take the whole message this morning, don't we, as a word from God. Now, it's not all inspired, especially the part about being two weeks out and right at the edge of the Jordan River, okay? My word doesn't, is not inspired, but is God using me to communicate the word of God this morning? I think so. The preaching of the word. So I take this, and since he doesn't define it down, I would just take it as the revealed word of God to his people. As God reveals his word to his people, we are to listen closely. God does that in a lot of different ways. None more important than the written word of God. And we can just kind of think of the written word of God, our Bibles, as the most specific form of the revealed word of God. So this word is a living word, John 6, 63. It brings life. 1 Peter 1, 23, that I already mentioned in our introduction about our salvation through the word of God, which lives and it abides forever. What does that mean? Is living Psalm 119, verse 50. Psalm 119, verse 50. Your word has given me life. It's a living word, so it gives life. It's not static. It has a work that it does unlike any other book. I was reading a blog that addressed this very point, and I thought he captured very well what I'm trying to communicate here, so I thought I would just read it to you for a minute. It's a blog by Phil Johnson, who is the head of uh, Grace to You Radio, which is John MacArthur's radio program. And he writes this about the living word of God. You can take all the great books and all the great literature in the world combined, and they do not have this life-giving power. No book changes lives like the word of God. You might occasionally hear a person say his life was transformed by a self-help book, Or someone will tell you this book on dieting or exercise or organizing your living space was totally revolutionary. Someone's whole worldview might change after reading a book on philosophy or politics. But the life-giving and life-changing power of the Bible is something far deeper than that. Some of you could give testimony to this. He goes on. It renews the heart by giving spiritual life 
to the spiritually dead. It changes our character in an essential, fundamental transformation of heart. It completely revamps our motives and our desires. It cleanses and renews us thoroughly, and it brings about a total moral overhaul such as no human literature could ever hope to accomplish. In biblical terms, it sanctifies us. It sets us apart from sin. And that's something no other book could ever claim to offer. But more than that, it resurrects the soul from a stale, hopeless, spiritual lifelessness. I agree with that. It's a book that transforms and brings life to that which was dead. So number one, it's not to be taken lightly. Number two, it's living. It's not a dead book. It transforms. Number three, it is powerful. Notice what it says in our text. For the word of God, number one, is living, okay, and some of, your, uh, some of you who carry a King James Bible, it might say quick instead of living. And that's an old English word that just means alive. It was quick. It was alive. Okay? We don't use that word in that context anymore at all. We, don't even, we wouldn't understand quick. The word of God is quick. Zing, zang. It's fast. It's alive is what it means. The word of God is quick or is living. And then the next thing it says is that it is powerful. The ESV says active. It is a powerful book. It has an activity of its own. If we were looking at the Greek text, and I'm no Greek guy, I'm an English Bible guy, but just in my study, I read where that word that's translated in the ESV active or in the New King James powerful comes from a Greek word that if you were to spell it out on the board in English letters, it almost looks right away like the English word we get from it, energy. Energy. We get the English word energy. It has a power of its own. It is powerful. It convicts. It challenges. It teaches. It impacts. Even furthermore, number four, it is like a razor-sharp sword that pierces into our hearts It goes to the core of our beings. Look what he says. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it is even a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It tells us the truth about ourselves. The word picture there is of a short Roman sword that the Hebrew listener would have been very familiar with. They would have seen it on the sides of occupying Roman people, Roman forces, Roman soldiers, a short sword used for fighting in close combat. And it was razor sharp down both edges of the blade going to a point. Why both sides? Because on, on either swing back or forth, you had a sharp blade an edge that would cut, but it was particularly designed for piercing. You could thrust it. And with that point and with the razor edges, it could thrust and it would go all the way in and do significant damage to ligaments and tendons and cut the bones apart. But not only that, even in the soul and spirit of us. I don't think he's arguing for a dichotomy instead of a trichotomy. It's just an illustration to go into the innermost part of us, to the core of our being, to the heart of hearts. The word of God cuts and penetrates. And it changes us and it challenges us. So it is not to be taken lightly. It is a living book. It transforms. It's powerful. It has its own energy. It cuts to the core. It's like a a surgeon doing his work to correct, to take out the bad and 
It's what the word of God does. It's, it's very necessary in our lives. Number five, notice what he says then. He says, it is a discerner at the end of verse 12. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. The word of God tells us the truth about ourselves. You know, one reason that people avoid the word of God is because they don't really want to know the truth about themselves. And the word of God is what would set us free if we would receive the word of God. This is what the writer of Hebrews is wanting the, the recipients, this little church of Hebrew believers, to not fall into the trap of the Old Testament Israelite saints in the wilderness where they believed God so far, but then they rejected the word. They did not accept the word. They added their own logic to the word and they sorted out God's word through their own grid rather than by faith, simply entering into belief in the word of God and letting the blessing of God come from from their faith in the word of God and entering into that rest that comes. And that's how we are, aren't we? Aren't we anxious? We're not anxious for nothing. We're anxious for everything. And don't we worry? And aren't we frustrated? And that just things bother us and we, we aren't at rest. God promised to meet our needs. He promised to feed us. He, he promised to watch over us. He promised never to leave us or forsake us. He tells us that he loves us and yet we're anxious. Why? Because well, it just doesn't feel like it. It doesn't matter what it feels like. He said it. You're supposed to link your faith with the word and out of that comes the peace then and the rest of entering in. No, well, you know, I, I have things going on in my life and nothing's stacking up. That's because you're not doing anything according to the word of God. You think you're going to be blessed when you don't live according to the word of God? You're nuts. Your dead body's going to be in the wilderness. Especially young people. Embrace the word of God. Let the word of God be your guide. It is a powerful thing. He means what he says. The consequence of disregarding the word of God cannot be overstated. And it will transform your life. And it is a discerner of our thoughts and the intents. You cannot fool God. And it's like that thought almost triggers another thought. And then he changes and he he moves from talking about the word of God to the very person of God. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I believe he's talking to believers in God. Number five, it exposes with complete accuracy our thoughts and our motives. Number six, when we move into verse 13, we see right away that the word of God and the character of God reflect one another. So how the word of God is everywhere, it penetrates, it doesn't miss a thing. It's going to discern with complete accuracy what's going on inside us and tell us the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. So God himself, look, is there like the word of God. Nothing is hidden from its sight. That sword that penetrates is the same as the attributes of God, like his omnipresence, his omniscience. We talked about this on Palm Sunday, about a couple of these omni attributes, but notice that the word of God and the character of God are reflective. It is the word of God is reflective of the character of God. And in 13a, we see nothing other than a representation or a teaching about the omnipresence of God. Look what it says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Well, if there is no creature that can be hidden from his sight, then he's everywhere. 
I was at Appalachian Bible College uh, yesterday morning, uh, staying in a, in, a, in a residence that was equipped for guests that is a townhouse there on their campus. And I got up early and I was down at a desk in the kitchen area and I was looking out a patio door on the hillside where there were trees and at about 7 o'clock a little chipmunk came out from under the tree root and I watched him for a little while. He would duck back in and go inside the base of the tree out of sight. And God knew exactly where that chipmunk was. There is no creature out of his sight including every human being. He's omnipresent. That means he is everywhere, 360, present. Letter, letter B, he is omniscience. Not only is he everywhere, nothing is hidden from his sight. His eyes are everywhere. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Secondly, he is omniscient. I think it's a statement of his omniscience. But all things are naked. All, every bit of information is available to him. You cannot hide on God. You cannot sneak on God. You cannot trick God. You cannot tell God you love him and then disobey his word because he knows your heart. The word of God penetrates. The eyes of God are there. So the word of God and the eyes of God tell the truth. And he's omnipotent. And because he's omnipotent, we have to give an account to him. That's a statement of his authority and his power. And open to the eyes of him, the end of verse 13, to whom we must give an account. I think that's a reminder of his omnipotence, all of his power. Let her see. Notice that the word of God, number eight, number seven, requires mandatory accountability. The word of God requires mandatory accountability. To him, to whom we must give an account. Now this is not, praise God, Romans 8, 1 is true that... I don't have to give an account of every sin I've ever done because Jesus' blood cleanses me from all sin. But I have to give an account for my response to the word of God and living by faith. And as a steward of the word of God, how have I lived? The blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. The blood of Christ positions me as justified, set apart from sin and no longer accountable for that sin. That is a set, finished work of Christ. That's justification. In my sanctification, the process of letting the word of God conform me to the son of God and enter into the will of God, that's where I have some answering to do. I have day-to-day decisions that I have to make. Why am I making those decisions? Often it's because I doubt the word of God. And so I never live out the will of God because I've minimized the word of God. What are we supposed to get from this? The same thing the Hebrew believers were supposed to get from it. You know what really matters? The word of God. Here's what really matters. God has spoken. What are you doing with that? He doesn't trifle. He doesn't take lightly his words. In fact, it's the most important thing about us. Have we listened to the word of God? Are we linking our faith to the word of God and entering into the blessing of God through obedience? Will you stand with me and bow your heads, please? And so, Father, examine our hearts. Your word does its work. Your eye is upon us, both for conviction and for comfort. It comforts us to know that you always see us. You always hold your children in your hand. And yet we're convicted. We think we can close the door and shut off the light and get away with some nonsense. 
We think we can give lip service to you, and yet in our hearts, you are a discerner of our thoughts and our intents. We cannot trick you. So, Father, like the Hebrew believers needed to enter into a walk of faith and believing your word, like the Israelites of old failed to just believe your word and enter into the rest that comes and the place of blessing in living out your will and your word, help us, Lord, to accept your word, to walk in the truth, to live the truth, to take very seriously your word and to walk by faith and obedience to the word of God. Help us, I pray. We are weak people. We need your help. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who modeled for us this kind of obedience and humility. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We'll count on these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. And uh...